Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our service today. The Bible speaks of a rest for the people of God. What is that rest? And have Christians already entered into the rest? One of the reasons it's important that we understand the correct answers to these questions is a false teaching that we, if we profess faith in Jesus Christ, have already entered the rest of which the Bible speaks. It's alleged that Christ is our rest. And then it's further reasoned that since we've already entered the rest, typified by the weekly Sabbath, that we no longer need to keep the Sabbath because what it typifies has already been fulfilled according to that idea. I want to show you today that the premise of that teaching is false and we'll discuss the ramifications of that as we proceed. First of all, nowhere does the Bible say that Christ is our rest or Jesus is our rest. The Bible does say in the context of patiently waiting on God's deliverance from evildoers in Psalm 37 and verse 7, Psalm 37 and verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. The context of this verse shows clearly that those who wait patiently on God in faithful obedience to him will be ultimately rewarded. And when the wicked are punished, it says in Psalm 37 verse 29, Psalm 37 verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Of the righteous, it says in verse 31 of Psalm 37, the law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. So the message is that we must continue in faith while awaiting our future reward. In verse 34, the same Psalm 37, wait on the Lord, it says, and keep his way and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Notice it says, when the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. You shall inherit your reward when the wicked are cut off. If Christ is our rest, it is in the sense that he will lead us into the rest that he has promised. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice he didn't say he is our rest. He said, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, it's interesting that this statement of Jesus is in the context of a controversy over how, not whether, but how to keep the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had found fault with Jesus' disciples for plucking a few heads of grain on the Sabbath. But as Alfred Edersheim, an authority on Jewish practices in the time of Christ admits, and as was written in his book, the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah, he comments, quote, it was clearly not a breach of the 
biblical, but of the rabbinical or the rabbinic law. There's not a breach of the biblical, but of the rabbinic law in reference to keeping the Sabbath and the plucking of a few heads of grain on the Sabbath. So this was a result of the fact that the Pharisees had added many contradictory and burdensome rules to God's commandment regarding the Sabbath. Jesus rebuked the scribes for imposing these burdensome requirements. When he said, quote, in Matthew 23 and verse 4, Matthew 23 and verse 4, he said, They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move or remove them, as it could be translated, them with one of their fingers. According to Edersheim, these rules of men, quote, could be laid on or moved away according to the varying judgment or severity of a rabbinic college. End quote. Now, what he's speaking of here is that there were various rabbis that had differences of opinion in how to apply these rules or what the rule should be. And so, even though people generally recognized, uh, at least some of the people recognized these as authoritative, especially among the Pharisees, they were various opinions of men about what should or should not be done. And they included rules that they had made up of their own volition, not necessarily rules that are found in Scripture. In fact, many of them were contrary to Scripture. However, obedience to the holy law of God, as opposed to man-made tradition, is not grievously burdensome. We read in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, 1 John 5 and verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Notice keeping the commandments constitutes the love of God. This is how we show love toward God is by keeping his commandments. And it goes on to say his commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not grievous. In walking faithfully in Christ's footsteps, obeying the laws he did, we can experience a certain tranquility and peace, even in this age of turmoil and trouble. As we read in Psalm 119, verse 165, Psalm 119, verse 165, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. So obedience to, to the laws of God is a source of peace, even in this age. And it says in Psalm 94, beginning in verse 12, Psalm 94, and verse 12, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him a rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. So we can have a certain degree of rest in keeping the law even now as the wicked dig their own pits, so to speak, by their disobedience and rebellion against God's word. The scriptures make it clear that the ultimate rest of which Jesus and the prophets and apostles spoke must await the return of the Messiah and his reign of righteousness. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were under God's direct rule, he gave them work to do. As we read in Genesis 2 and verse 15, 
Genesis 2 and verse 15, it says the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So the man and the woman, after she was created, were given the work of tending and keeping the garden that God had placed them in as their abode. But their work was not a bondage or heavy toil. It was not a struggle for survival. They were not enduring affliction. It was only after they sinned that things changed. And we read in Genesis 3 and verse 17, after Adam and Eve had, Eve had sinned and rebelled and done what God had told them not to do and, and did not do what he had told them to do, he said to them, this is Genesis 3, beginning with verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil, or as it could be translated, in sorrow, or in pain, in labor, in hard, hardship. You shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb in the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Life in this world, and Adam and Eve had chosen to follow Satan and live under his oppressive rule rather than live under God's benevolent rule. And so we live in a sense today in Satan's world. Satan is the God of this world. He is the the invisible ruler of this world because God has has allowed human beings to choose to live under Satan's rules and his oppressive government, you might say. And that's because that's what they've chosen to do. And so life under Satan's oppressive and harsh rule is typified by the bondage that was endured by the Israelites in Egypt, which is a type of this world. And so we read in Exodus 1 the kind of bondage that the Israelites experienced under the Egyptians in slavery in verse 13 of Exodus 1. The Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, or it could be translated with harshness, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service with which he made them to serve was, was with rigor. But God called the people of Israel out of Egypt and he led them into the wilderness which is a type of our calling and our struggle as Christians toward the rest which awaits us in God's kingdom. Paul wrote of this in the book of Hebrews, how the, the Sabbath pictures the rest that was awaiting Israel when they entered the promised land and also is a type of our rest in God's kingdom. 
The Sabbath is throughout Scripture connected with the idea of a rest, a ceasing from one's own work and related ideas. In fact, the Hebrew word for Sabbath comes from Shabbat, which means to rest in a wide variety of senses. Paul understood that the Sabbath and other holy days, the other Sabbaths, are typical of God's plan of salvation. As he wrote in Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 16, Colossians 2 verse 16, writing of the Sabbaths that they are, not that they were, but they are, as it is in the Greek, as well as in the English translation, that they are a shadow or a figure, a type of things to come. In other words, the Sabbaths, including the weekly Sabbaths, have prophetic significance. They are a picture of things to come. And the Sabbath is a living type of entering the promised spiritual inheritance of God. The kingdom of God. The family of God. Now, while Israel was trekking through the wilderness, they had not entered their rest, which was the promised inheritance. Now, at best, they could only look forward to the prospect of entering the land of promise. But after they had entered and took possession of the promised land, it said in the book of Joshua that God had given them rest. Joshua 1, beginning verse 13. God said to those of the tribes that were settling on the east side of the river Jordan, Joshua said to them, speaking for God here, he said in verse 13 of Joshua 1, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Notice in giving the land, the inheritance, God was giving them a rest, as it's termed. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. And this was before they they had crossed the Jordan. And as I said, this was addressed to the tribes which were settling on the east of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren, armed all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest, rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall enjoy it. Which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Now later on, after some years, after the Israelites under Joshua's leadership had taken possession of most of the land that God had promised them. We read in Joshua 21, beginning verse, verse 23. Joshua 21 and verse 23. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them possession all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. Not a man of their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their land. Not a word failed of any 
good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel all came to pass. So notice that they had been given rest upon inheriting the land. They had entered into rest only upon having received the promised inheritance. However, what occurred with the Israelites is only a physical type of a greater, more meaningful spiritual promise relating to the church, spiritual Israel. The rest which the Israelites enjoyed upon entering the land of promise was only transitory. It was neither permanent nor it was it complete. God had told the Israelites that continuing to live in peace in the land God had given them depended upon continuing obedience to his laws. He told them in Leviticus 26, beginning with verse 2, he said, you shall keep this, my Sabbaths. Notice he said, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, the God's Sabbaths, not the Jews' Sabbaths, the God's Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, and then he proceeded to tell them the kinds of blessings they could expect if they did this, if they kept the statutes of God and his commandments, including his Sabbaths. And among those promises in verse 6, it says, I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through, go through your land. So God would give them peace and rest from afflictions and warfare and things of that sort. But God warned them, beginning with verse 14, Leviticus 26, verse 14, if you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And then there were other curses that would befall them as you can read in Leviticus 26 and elsewhere where God warned what would happen if the people of Israel rebelled in in disobeying God's commandments. Now David, King David had been a man after God's own heart. And even though he stumbled and committed some grievous sins in his life, he repented of those sins and continued to seek God. And God judged him faithful, even though he had sinned as we all do at times. But again, he was repentant when confronted with his sins. and. God judged him faithful, even though he was a man of war. They were living in a physical kingdom at that time, a physical nation. And David had been a man of war. But that was not necessarily something that was uh, 
pleasing to God in certain respects because God is a God of peace. And although they, he can make war when necessary, but generally speaking, God wants us to live in peace. And David said to Solomon, his son, who was to succeed to him after he died as the king of Israel, David said to Solomon, as we read in First Chronicles chapter 22, beginning with verse 7, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon. Now the name Solomon in the Hebrew means peaceful. For I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. So during most of Solomon's reign, Israel was at peace. But toward the end of his life, Solomon's heart was not faithful. He built idolatrous places of worship for his wives, which was contrary to God's law and abominable to God. And so God allowed enemies among the Edomites and Syrians to trouble Israel toward the end of Solomon's reign, and the kingdom was split asunder as the northern tribes under Jeroboam's leadership rebelled against the house of David shortly after Solomon's death. Afterward, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were often at war, not only with each other, but with their enemies, and only rarely did they know peace. In 2 Chronicles 15, we read a summary of this, how the, the people fared, the tribes of Israel and Judah fared after the time of uh, David and Solomon in, in 2 Chronicles 15, beginning with verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Asa was the king of Judah at that time, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. This is the condition into which the Israel nations had fallen. And this was true throughout most of the period of the kings for both Israel, virtually all of the history of Israel up until their captivity after they had split off from the tribe of Judah, and it was true of Judah much of the time as well, because they had forsaken God's word, forsaken the laws. Most of the kings were evil. But it goes on to say, when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in, but great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands 
So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. So this was a message that was given to Asa the king by one of the prophets. When Judah, under the leadership of Asa, entered into a covenant to seek God uh, as a result of this rebuke by God, it says in verse 15 of Second Chronicles 15, they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Notice when they had sought God and repented and began to obey, the Lord gave them rest all around. Asa's son Jehoshaphat was also faithful to God, and during most of his reign, the land was at peace. We read in Second Chronicles 20 and verse 30, Second Chronicles 20 and verse 30, under the reign of Jehoshaphat, who also was a righteous king, the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. But again, these brief periods of relative peace and a few others like them were transitory and incomplete. They pointed, however, to a much more secure and permanent rest, only to be accomplished fully under the reign of the promised Messiah, the future king of Israel, during the millennial period and beyond. Most of the Israelites who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness, not having received the promised inheritance because of their faithlessness and disobedience. Though there were a few periods of transitory and incomplete rest for Israel after entering the inheritance under Joshua, we're told that Joshua did not lead them into the full and permanent rest typified by the Sabbath. In Hebrews 4, beginning with verse 4, Hebrews 4 and verse 4, it says, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day, the commanded day of rest was the seventh day of the week, not some other day, but the seventh day of the week, where he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. Quote, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Saul is, or Paul rather is quoting scripture here. Going on in verse five, he said, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Again, quoting from the Old Testament. Verse 6, he said, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, that is, if he had given them the full and ultimate rest typified by the Sabbath, we read, then he would not afterward have spoken of another way, or another day, I should say. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Now, this actually applies in a couple of different ways. The Greek word translated rest in verse 9 is sabbatismos, 
and it means literally Sabbath keeping or Sabbath observance. And it refers not only to the future rest typified by the weekly Sabbath, but it also refers to the weekly Sabbath observance itself, which typifies that future rest, and which is one of the Ten Commandments, which we as Christians are obliged to obey. Paul warns in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, that like most of the Israelites who came out of Egypt, we too could fall short. Paul is discussing that subject throughout chapter 3 and at least most of chapter 4. To get the full understanding of what he is saying, one needs to read both chapters. Some key verses that will help us understand when and under what circumstances we enter the rest promised to us are as follows. In Hebrews 3 and verse 6, it says, We are ultimately and finally concluded members of God's family only if we hold fast to the end. Christ, and this is quoting the scripture, Hebrews 3 and verse 6, Christ is faithful as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Notice we will ultimately be a part of the household of God Permanently, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, we cannot turn back. Because if we do, then, then we will lose our place in God's kingdom. In verse 14 of Hebrews 3, it says, For we have become partakers of Christ if Notice, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. This is directly contrary, by the way, to what many teach, which teach that all you have to do is make a profession of faith in Christ, and then whatever you do after that doesn't matter. That is a, a, a lie, contrary to many scriptures, including these that we just read. The word confidence here in, in verse 14 is from the Greek word uh, hypostasis or hypostasis might be might be pronounced in the anglicized uh, version of that word. It means in this context our firm trust in whom and in what we have believed. We must hold firm that trust to the end to have become partakers of Christ fully, and we. We display our faith toward God through obedience to him. In Hebrews 4 and verse 3, Hebrews 4 and verse 3, it says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. Do enter is from the Greek word aserkamai. Aserkamai, by the way, we're... we're uh, experiencing a thunderstorm here where we are and uh, hopefully the lightning and so forth will not uh, cause the electricity to fail here but uh, if you heard some thunder that's what's going on uh, we do enter is in the present tense in the Greek which would better be translated we are entering 
it implies a process. Israel was in the process of entering the physical rest in the promised land as they journeyed through the wilderness. And we are involved in a process now as we live our lives in the wilderness of this evil world to be concluded when our entrance into the promised rest of God's kingdom is to be fully accomplished. And that will be when we are resurrected to eternal life of God's kingdom. In Hebrews 4 and verse 11, Hebrews 4 and verse 11, it says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Or as it is in the King James Version, let us labor to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. So we must labor. The Greek word, spudatso, which means means to exert oneself, to endeavor, to give diligence to enter. Now, if we had already entered that rest, as some teach, we would not need to be laboring. We would not need to be diligent, but to be diligent. In the sense that that's meant, we'd be resting. So these verses and Paul's analogy taken as a whole shows clearly that we have not entered the rest of which we are speaking, but it yet remains for us to enter it. In Luke 13 and verse 24, Luke 13, verse 24, Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Notice he said, strive to enter, speaking to his disciples, to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And he told us that the entrance into God's kingdom is in this lifetime is narrow and difficult. In Philippians 3, beginning with verse 7, Philippians 3 and verse 7, Paul wrote, What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The law here, speaking of, of the law of the Old Covenant, as was understood among the Jews at that time, which included, as they understood it, many of the their traditions which are not part of the laws of God but uh, he goes on to say but of the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection notice that genuine faith in Christ produces righteousness the righteousness of obedience to God's word that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, lest by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, 
Notice that Paul did not believe that he had already attained to salvation, even though he was converted and he was an apostle and he was serving Christ in faith. He said, I have not already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this same mind. So if Paul had not attained salvation, if he, his salvation was not complete or yet assured then ours is not either we have to as long as we're in this flesh we have to continue pressing forward toward the goal just as the israelites in the wilderness had to press forward toward the goal because they had not reached it yet they had not entered the promised land and we have not entered the promise of god's kingdom as yet in terms of our complete uh, inheritance. In Hebrews 10 and verse 35, and that does not mean, by the way, that we're not under Christ's rule. It means that our journey is not complete. In Hebrews 10 and verse 35, we read, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for if you have, uh, for he said, if you you have need of endurance, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, but speaking of this lifetime, remaining faithful throughout our lives, you may receive the promise. Living faithfully toward God and obeying his laws can assure, uh, can afford us, I should say, a certain measure of peace even now. Because life in this world is full of tribulation, sorrow, and trouble, even for those who live in faith toward God. But our ultimate reward and our ultimate rest will come later. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Going on in verse, or chapter 3 and verse 1, chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good, uh, it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that 
we are appointed to this. In other words, if we suffer afflictions in this life, that is what we are appointed to. This life is not yet the kingdom of God. It is a life of trial, of trouble, afflictions. Going on in verse 4, it says, For in fact we told you before, when we were with you, that we should trouble, that we should suffer uh, tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. So if we are suffering trials and tribulation in this lifetime, we should not be surprised because that is what the word of God clearly says that we can expect quite often. Paul wrote about this further in Hebrews chapter 11, how those who live faithful in times past often suffered tribulation and trials. Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in twain. They're sawn in two. They're tempted and slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Notice these people, all these faithful of ancient times, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and many others, have not yet received the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They will receive their promise in the resurrection, just as we will, if we are faithful. Psalm 34 verse 19 tells us, Psalm 34 verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Ultimately, we will be delivered from our afflictions. Now, that may be in some cases in this particular time, depending on the trial we're enduring, but ultimately it means in the resurrection. In God's kingdom, that's when the final and ultimate deliverance will come for all of us. In Psalm 71 and verse 20, Psalm 71 and verse 20, you, in other words, God is speaking of, you, God, who have shown me great and severe troubles, shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You who have shown me great and severe trouble shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. That's speaking of the resurrection and a resurrection to life, to eternal life. For those who are faithful in this age. In Isaiah 57 and verse 1, Isaiah 57 and verse 1, it says, The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. 
merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. Speaking of death, physical death, and it says, he shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now, in this case, the reference is to the sleep of death from which the righteous dead will eventually be resurrected to eternal life and then will enjoy peace and joy forevermore in God's kingdom, not dead but alive at that time. Meanwhile, they are asleep and in that sense are resting in their graves, which the Bible refers to a number of times. This is further illustrated by Jesus in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. In Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, so it was that the beggar died and was at the time of the resurrection, as other scriptures affirm. The beggar died and was at the time of the resurrection, as other scriptures affirm, carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now that's a, I added the uh, statement at the time of the resurrection as other scriptures affirm, because that's how this is to be understood. He did not go to heaven uh, instantaneously, as many believe. In fact, he did not go to heaven at all. He was buried. And uh, later, at the resurrection, when Abraham is resurrected, along with Lazarus, then he will be carried by the angels to his union with Christ and others who are resurrected at that time to Abraham's bosom. The angels will return with Christ, we're told in Scripture. And the dead will be resurrected, and with Christ and the angels, they will proceed to actually to Jerusalem with Christ, as we're told in Zechariah chapter 14, the other Scriptures. But uh, this phrase carried to Abraham's bosom implies a close relationship, an intimate relationship with Abraham. It goes on to say in the scripture there in Luke 16 that the rich man also died and was buried. And then later in this parable, Abraham, having himself been resurrected to eternal life and the rich man having been resurrected from the grave to physical life, Abraham says to him, the rich man, in verse 25, he said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now the rich man who had rejected God and evidently was deemed uh, incorrigible, was resurrected and he was facing destruction in the lake of fire. And he was tormented by 
the prospect of being cast into the lake of fire to be burned up. And that's explained in our article uh, more in detail in our article titled Lazarus and the Rich Man, which you can find on our website at cogmessenger.org, cogmessenger.org. Also, I might comment that you can also subscribe to our magazine, Messenger Magazine, which we publish quarterly, and you can find on our website how to subscribe to our magazine, Messenger Magazine, which we send out quarterly to those who are interested in subscribing. You can also download a PDF version of our magazine from the website, which you can subscribe to the printed copy there as well. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12, Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth. There are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity or transitoriness or temporariness. In other words, this is a temporary type of situation which we're living in this age where the evil and the wicked often flourish and are prosperous while the righteous are often punished and persecuted and suffer. But that is a condition of this transitory period through which we are living this age of evil where Satan oppresses the righteous and, and the wicked are often go unpunished. Now, there may be interventions and deliverances and respites of a transitory nature for us in this lifetime. And we should rejoice and take pleasure in the blessings and benefits that God makes available to us in this lifetime. And we are often blessed in many ways. But the rest that we ought to be seeking first and foremost is the one we will be given in the resurrection. That is where our ultimate reward lies. The rest that Paul speaks of in Hebrews 4, the promise to which we look forward is God's kingdom. Both the literal rule of God's kingdom on earth is prophesied in the spiritual inheritance that we will enjoy as members of the divine family for all eternity because our reward, our blessing, the gift that God wants to give to us if we are faithful is eternal life. Eternal life in the family of God. In Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 16, Isaiah 32 and verse 16, justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation 
in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. This is speaking of the time of the kingdom of God. The millennial rest begins after Christ returns as king of kings and lord of lords. After he has put down his enemies and established peace under his rule, Israel and the world will live at rest as described in this scripture that we just quoted. Isaiah 32 and a number of other scriptures as well. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians further in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest. To give you who are troubled, speaking to, to those faithful Christians that he was writing to, which ultimately includes us since this is part of scripture to give you our troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels now notice when we are to be given rest it says plainly when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels that's when Lazarus will enter his rest in the resurrection, as it were. And it's when the rest of those who are faithful in this age will have the rest, which is typified by the Sabbath. Our rest will begin when Jesus Christ returns. And as other scriptures show, when we are born, as it were, into the kingdom of God, sharing fully in the nature of, of the Father and Jesus Christ and partaking of their glory. We will be in their likeness just as human beings share the nature of their physical parents. We will share the nature of God. We are told in Scripture that doesn't mean that we will be equal in authority with God, but we will, as Scripture says, share His likeness and nature so that's what god has in store for us so as, as we keep the sabbath each week we are to be reminded of the promises that god has made and we are to be looking forward to them we have also an article on our website cogmessenger.org an article titled why christians should keep the sabbath and that will go into greater detail how christians are obliged to keep the sabbath day the weekly sabbath that god set aside as a holy day and made one of his commandments his ten commandments which form the backbone so to speak of his law and we should be reminded that the condition of our entering into God's rest is that we remain steadfast to the end. Now, to those who think they've already entered the rest and need not keep the Sabbath, that lesson is lost. So let's not let the lesson be lost to us. Now, 